Do you wear a watch, Cole Henley? I do not at the moment. The clasp on it's broken, but I've kind of got used to living without one now. I can't remember the last time I wore a watch. It must have been about 20 years ago. I had a really nice gold Casio watch, which has sort of pride of place on my wrist, but like I said, the clasp broke on it because I think the kids were wearing it a lot. And, uh, and it just, it sits by my bed as my morning alarm call now. I don't ever wear it. And I've since, since the class broke, I've got a tattoo on my arm and I'm in two minds now whether I want to wear a watch on that arm. Is it close to where the tattoo is? Yeah, the tattoo's on the inner arm and I just think the watch might, you know, not work well together. You mean you need to give the tattoo a bit of white space? Yeah, yeah, a bit of breathing. And he's curling my watch. <laughs> <laughs> there's a, there's a show title and we're only like, a minute in. Fantastic. There'll be more of those. Now, I suppose we should briefly mention the rumours that Apple's going to enter the wearables market, so they say, with their well, iWatch. But that sounds terrifying. I don't know. I don't know about you, but I'm a definitely a notifications off trying not to. I mean, obviously spending a lot of time online, but the thought of this ubiquitous web presence in my life just sounds a bit scary. I saw the video of the review that Joanna Stern did for the Wall Street Journal. Of one of these Samsung smartwatchy things. And yeah, it was constant and there's no way of filtering, I don't think, with Android to the notifications that you get. So this mm. thing was like constantly buzzing on her arm and oh, it would just drive me mad. Yeah, I mean, we had a guy in the office that had a Pebble, which is one of the early sort of Kickstarter sort of Android watches, I think. And um, but it was, yeah, it's just that sense of having to know when something's happening. I, I struggle to keep in touch with stuff anyway. I'm the world's worst person with email. So the thought of having to sort of be alerted to something happening um, just really scares me. I love the fact that all these pundits say that you know, they're late to the wearables market, as if there is actually a wearables market somehow. If you edge, apart from the pebble, and I've seen a couple of people with them, but I've never seen anybody in the real world walking around with, like, you know, one of those big slabby Samsung things. <laughs> Well, maybe maybe they've got um, digital underwear or something, so you can't quite see it, but uh, it's there, you know, just there to buzz every so often when you're getting an email without it being so overt. I just can't believe that Apple's going to bring out anything like that. So, I mean, what problem does it solve, really? You just get your phone out your pocket. Uh, maybe they try to dispense with the idea of pockets. Oh, now there's a disruption that I hadn't thought of. You know, we don't need change. We've got, like, contactless cards now. That's it, the, the future, the future pocketless trousers. I mean, I was thinking about this the other day. With all of the things that they talked about at WWDC, with like the home kit stuff, and I mean, everybody focuses on health kit mm. and how it's going to be, you know, health monitoring uh, device. But the fact that you could have something, I mean, I know your phone's in your pocket, but the, the phone is, you know, what, five, six hundred dollars. If they had a device which you wore somewhere, it doesn't have to be you know, on your wrist, that would be able to communicate with your home. So, you know, when you did walk through the door, it turned your lights on and mm. and, and, and boiled the kettle, which is the first thing that I always do when I, when I come home. That could be an interesting thing. And it wouldn't have to be on your wrist. It could be, you know, a pin badge, a lapel badge, or uh, an earring. That could yeah. be quite cool. Well, you get a lot of the exercise things. They just sit all sort of Bluetooth things that you attach to your clothing or something. I mean, I remember... Um, was it deconstruct for quite a few years ago? There was this talk of Internet of Things and picking up people's movements and being able to sort of do useful things with it. Um, but it's ever, you know, it's taken a while to catch on. Tell you what did arrive this week for me. I got a box of 
tiles. Have you, do you know about those? I thought you meant you were doing a kitchen or something. I, yeah, I know what you mean. Um, the, yes, the things that help you lose, uh, find lost things. Apparently that's what they're supposed to do. So you get these little tiles for people that don't know. And there are about, they're about an inch square, these things. With a little hole. So in too them. big for an Apple remote then? Yes. Yeah, actually they're bigger than I thought they were going to be. And they're quite thick too. They're sort of, I don't know, at least five or six mil thick. They're about as, uh, not quite as thick as my phone. I haven't got one to hand, but the yeah. idea is, is that you're supposed to, uh, set them up with the tile app on your phone and they have some kind of low power Bluetooth communication in them. Yeah. And then you put them on your keys or you put them in your wallet or in a bag or on your bike. And if you, you know, mislay anything, then it'll help you find it. And if you're in the vicinity, if it's in the vicinity of your phone, then it communicates on Bluetooth. So you're supposed to know that, you know, it's within arm's reach, that kind of thing, mm. which is kind of how I would use it. But then the other way is that if you've got one in, let's say, your bag and you lost your bag and it's got all your stuff in it, then even though you may not be close to the tile and your phone might not be able to see the tile, if somebody else has the tile app installed on their iPhone and they're walking past your bag, then you would get a notification because, you know, without even them knowing, it kind of goes through the tile system and the cloud system and notifies you that your bag's been seen. I can think of an immediately good use for that. We dropped our children off at the grandparents last week and I left all their clothes at home. And if I'd only had had a tile on each of the trunkies that they had, I wouldn't have had to fork out a load of money on new clothes. So that immediately seems like a good idea. I thought you were going to say you were going to attach one to the kids. Well, that that would be a better idea. Yeah, maybe in their shoes or something. Well, I've only used two so far. I've got one attached to my car keys, and I put one in my wallet, which has got like a little... It's got a secret compartment, little secret zip-up compartment on the inside, and I thought that would be the ideal place to put one of these little tiles problem that i found straight away is that you can get it to play a sound you know because i don't losing your wallet in the in in the town is is one problem but you know actually knowing where it is so you can take it out the door to go shopping that's another right so Hmm. it's you're supposed to be able to go onto your phone pick the tile get it to play a sound and obviously that helps you figure out the sound is so quiet the volume is so low that it's you can't even hear it when it's in the wallet is this basically like a digital version of those old key rings where you had to whistle in different pitches around the house to find things? Yes. Remember those? Yes, but 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 geekier. I just remember sort of me and my sister and my parents walking around the house trying to whistle in different pitches because someone had lost the keys. And it, was, it was just farcical. It would be hilarious to watch. Well, I'm going to be interested to find out when is it. Is it September the 9th? So only a couple of weeks till we'll find out what Apple has planned, if yeah. they have anything planned. But did did they have smartwatches in 2000 AD comics, do you think? I think they almost certainly did. I think they would have, um, Halo Jones at least would have had one. Um, Dan Dare would have had one. uh, Strontium Dark, probably. I bet Judge Dredd had one. He knew what was going on everywhere. We mustn't talk about that. We mustn't get sidetracked because people will phone in and complain if we go on a massive tangent. I suppose there's a million things that we could talk about, but what we're going to talk about today, I think, is more kind of freelancing and business and plenty of other stuff. Cool. But what I think I should do before we get going is I'll just thank our first sponsor because they're relatively new to the show, but I really like what they do. And it's Big Board. 
And Big Board's a new service that brings together the web-based tools that we all use every day into a convenient and beautifully designed dashboard. So here's the problem that I think a lot of us busy people face. We've got updates and conversations and notifications, I suppose, happening across a whole host of different services. So you might have project updates that are happening on Basecamp or Trello. Then there's your activity on GitHub. And you've got your diary in Google Calendar. Yeah, I should stop there. Big Board integrates all of these services and a lot more. And to start, you simply connect Big Board with the services that you use. And for me, that gets started with Basecamp. You authorize the connection and that's it. And then I did the same thing with GitHub so I can keep track of any Rockhammer and other project updates without having to go to GitHub directly or to get any email notifications. They drive me nuts. That sounds like a really good idea. But they've recently integrated Dribble, So, you know, there's a lot more service integrations on the way. Even better, what you can do is you can group data from different services together. So, for instance, if you've got a client on Basecamp for project management and you're hosting their Git repos in Beanstalk, whatever that is, and you're tracking your time for the project on Harvest, you simply group them together in Big Board and you can see an overview of that project's activity for the day or the week or the month. And Big Board's really well designed. There's a light and a dark mode, which I think looks the nicest. And Big Board's responsive. So what you can do, and this is what I do, is keep it open on an iPad, just standing in a little stand. And it looks great. And Big Board's only five US dollars per month. And you can get started with a free trial. There's no credit card required. You don't have to give them your credit card number. So you get started by going to unfinished.bz slash bigboard. And remember to use the offer code unfinished when you sign up and you'll get an extra 30 days on the free trial. And that's Big Board. Sounds good. No, actually, simple idea. And they've executed it really, 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 really well. Compatible on your watch. Ah, nice. I don't know about that. But that's one of the things that I'm going to be interested in because, God, where does it stop? I'm always interested in the other end of the spectrum, like tellies, I think. I think sort of that being able to use that technology we've always had and, and put stuff into it that we're working on. We just finished a little dashboard job for a client and we did a widescreen layout just so that they could, you know, get as much info on the, on the telly as possible. Because, you know, there wasn't a lot of point in having great big wide left and right margins. Hmm. So we just kind of grouped things together into two super columns and then floated them side by side. So you just get a nice widescreen layout. Yeah, as long as the text doesn't go massively into the distance. Uh, yeah, that's the problem. But, you know, I suppose that's the sort of thing you'd find out when you test. So mm. I just need to convince Sue that we really need one of those great big 72-inch <laughs> Samsung, um, whatever they are, 4K TVs. That'd be great. We uh, made a bit of a schoolboy error at Mud. We got a television for the World Cup before realising that all the football games were at sort of 7 or 8 in the evening. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, shame. If only there was a dashboard app we could use to sort of monitor our activities within the workplace. If only there, if only there was. But uh, I suppose this is the old excuse, isn't it? I need it for testing, love. That's what I'm going to do, whatever app yeah. will bring out. Oh, I need it for testing. Well, that's where I think Anna's got it sorted, Anna Debenham, because uh, getting into that gaming sector. <laughs> so I suppose the people who follow you and know what you do they wouldn't forgive me, really, if we didn't talk about your freelance rate survey. Sure, sure. And, and uh, very topical it is, too, because I finally, at long last, got around to this year's survey. This is a topical program. 
I don't think many people realise this. It's on the pulse. It really is. You know, we spend many, many long minutes coming up with what we're going to talk about accidentally. So, that yes, was a very long minute, I think it was, today. So as we record this, which is Friday morning, you've just launched the 2014 survey. Yeah. So what's this, number three, four? It's the fourth. It's the fourth one. So you did the first one 2011? Yeah. And you were freelance then? Yeah, well, I mean, that that was the motivation behind it, essentially. I didn't, I was sort of thrust into freelance work after being made redundant uh, four days notice and just had no idea what to, what to charge, really. And people just, I was sort of using Twitter to try and get people's, or just gather what people thought was a good rate. And people just weren't, quite, quite understandably, weren't very keen on talking about that publicly. So I thought it'd be really useful to try and gather anonymous information about what kind of stuff people are charging and also how they're working and, and also by trying to get a bit more information fleshed out so where they are, um, what kind of sector they work in, what their kind of experience is. So that would be, you know, rather than just having a blanket rate, we could start to do useful information with the responses. I think it's brilliant. I mean, I like the fact that it seems to be more focused on the UK. I know at, uh, Lister Park have done their big state of the web surveys in the past, haven't they? Yeah. But the fact that this is more skewed, tailored towards what we do over here um, certainly makes it more relevant to, to what I think. Yeah, it's very, I mean, it's very specific, to, uh, prior, selfishly, because that's the information I was interested in at the time. Um, bizarrely, I mean, I've had a few people in Germany and America ask if they could do something similar, and I'm more than happy, but no one seems to have sort of taken off with it. So if anyone wants to sort of run with the same sort of survey questions, they're more than welcome. Just looking at the introduction here, you've got the three key points about what you're trying to do. You take stock of rates in the UK for freelance work, offer a tool based on this information to help freelancers work out what they should realistically charge. Yeah, we'll come on to that in a minute, actually. Mm. And to help gather a picture of working conditions and lifestyle for freelancers, that's, you know, that's the bit that interests me a lot. You know, it's not just the money. It's not how much a day people charge, but all the other stuff that goes around it, you know, whether it's contracts or deposits or working hours or, or what? Yeah, I think sort of um, the contract question came in, actually, I think probably as a byproduct of one of your earliest uh, shows on this podcast. It was just something that, oh no, well, it's probably the contract killer, actually, because that was the 24 Ways article, wasn't it? Yeah. A couple of years ago. Um, and certainly after the first year, there was a lot of response. Um, and I think, I just saw it as a, if we're capturing that information, it's a really great context to try and just flesh out working life uh, for freelancers in the UK. Because like with rates, there's a lot of things we talk about, but there's a lot of things we don't talk about. Um, and a lot of it is guesswork. So being able to sort of just capture some data on that, which I thought would be really useful. And then, like I said, I, I mean, as a freelancer, I'd been pretty bad at using contracts, I have to say, uh, for a long time. And when I saw your 24 Ways article, I just thought, well, you know, this is quite important. I probably should be getting around to something like this. But I was just being, I suppose, too nice for business, I think, you know, the phrase. Um, and not really being very diligent about things like um, contracts getting deposits. Um, because I was just a bit shy and a bit awkward. Um, but having, usefully having that data, in the same way that having the data from the survey responses about what people charge gave me a lot more confidence in being able to sort of start asking for money up front, start insisting on having a contract for work, you know, start being realistic about what day rates I was charging. I can't find the data for 2013 because I don't think you made it quite as easy 
as the first year. You know, you split things over a couple of blog posts and I could only really find one. Yeah, that was, it was basically because I'd moved. So the survey responses came in around the same time I went to MUD. So going for freelance work into sort of running a small agency. I suppose, again, selfishly, we just looked, saw that as a really great opportunity to sort of help spread the word about MUD, but also get that information out there, um, not on a different platform. Um, I think there was quite, some people were quite, well, not upset. Uh, one or two people were quite upset that, you know, suddenly an agency was using this data. Um, but we weren't, there was no ulterior motive here. It's just, I'm now at an agency and I was freelance before, but I'm still interested in this information. We certainly, we use freelancers. So I think it's important to have a healthy you know, free, range of freelance contacts. And we've actually been bitten by, we've been hoisted by our own petard. We've had some freelancers sort of see the survey and up their rates, which, um, as a business is, not actually the best idea, but as a, as part of a business within a community of workers, it's definitely, I think, been beneficial, both, well, it's certainly been beneficial for me, um, but it, I think sort of to have mud carrying on this work. I don't think there's anything wrong in, in mud doing it and, mm. you know, and mud presenting the results. I mean, you know, that's fine. I mean, it's great PR and if it gets you page views and it creates interest, then, you know, God, that's what, that's what the reason I did blogging all those years ago. Mm. So there's nothing at all wrong with that. I just found it hard to find the stuff. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, I think one of the things, I mean, it was good for us as well that we're quite keen on having things like dev days for our staff. So it was a really good opportunity to just have something meaty to get our teeth into. I was really hoping to do some work with, um, Brian Suda because obviously he's Mr. Guru when it comes to information and data. Um, but that didn't happen last year, but hopefully I'll, I'll get in touch and see if he can do something nice for us this year. Well, he's going to be at deconstruct. I don't think I'm going this year. Oh, uh, controversial! I know. I'm sort of pairing back the conferences this year, just really because things have been very busy at work. Um, well, I'm going for the first time. I'll just take your spot. Yeah, I've never been. It's the tenth year, the tenth deconstruct, and I'm turning up for the first time. Well, it's a, it's a fantastic venue, and um, it's a great conference. And I just love Brighton. You know, I just really like. It's a great place to go and hang out and and talk with other people, and obviously got some really fun memories and met some really great people there. So. Well, I'm saving up. I'm saving up my money so that I can buy a frothy coffee. <laughs> and maybe even one of those burgers that they come in a, a bun they call brioche. I went to London recently, and I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a burger that isn't served in a brioche bun. <laughs> I like a poppy seed bun myself. But anyway, <laughs> we digress, and people will complain. In 2012, I'm just looking at these things here, 2012 in your survey. 47% of those people that replied did not charge a deposit up front for work. Um, and the same year, 44% didn't have a contract. And I just remember, in fact, I wrote a blog post about this. I think you were quite angry at the time. Well, I don't, no, I don't. I'm never angry. I'm angry. Animated. Animated sometimes. And what did I say? I said, if you don't ask your clients to sign a contract before you start work for them, you are a moron, is what I said. So that's not angry, is it? No, that's, that's fair. I think, I think yeah. sort of, it's, it's, it's definitely a hard lesson I learned as a freelancer that, you know, there's just, particularly as I was supporting a wife and two children, that there's just, you've got to be diligent and have good practices in place. Otherwise, it's not that people take advantage. I never experienced that, but you know, you're more prone to having difficult times, um, financially. Um, so yeah, that was definitely, I think sort of learned the hard way. You know, you just need to have these good, solid business practices in place. Just looking at some of the results from last year, one of the things I noticed here, the average rate went up from 280 to 300. So I suppose that's a bonus. Yeah. 
Do you know what we should do? Should I, th- I think we should fill this in now. I, I mean, actually, before we do that. I've got, actually, I owe you a debt of thanks from the first survey because you put in a, your rate, which was a little bit higher than some of the other people. Um, and it exposed the fact that I was using the wrong kind of average for working out my averages. Ah, uh, you see, but I don't know whether I'm actually the right sort of person to put it in. I mean, I suppose I could put in what our single designer, single person rate is, hmm. rather than what I think I did that year, which is to put in what the studio rate was. Yeah. Which is basically me and Sue combined, which I think was 1200 quid a day. Which, of course, just blew your calculations. Yeah. Well, it just exposed my absolute inability with maths, I think. Well, it certainly made it look as though Wales is, like, the highest paid place to do web design, which, funnily enough, I don't think it is. Uh, well, I think rightfully so, you know. I think uh, Wales, it's, had, it's a long time coming, and I think uh, Wales is going to be the cream on the top of the Brighton, the new Brighton. The, the new Brighton. Prostatin is the new Brighton. Yeah. Exactly. I never thought anyone would say that. What a fascinating podcast this is going to be, me filling in a form online. But no, let's just get it. Should we do this? Um, how old are you? Um, yeah, I don't know. Mine 45 plus. Let's put that in. I like how you did 45. You know what it's like when people do like 48 plus or 50 plus? It makes you feel bad. But, you know, being a bit older than 30, that's quite nice. Quite like that. Where are you based in the UK? Wales. Click that. Primary skill design. How would you describe what you do? So, designer. That's a bit of a general term, isn't it? Is it? Yeah, I mean, the, the, that question was, you know, uh, one, one thing I always ask is, what questions do you think are missing? And there was a, a bit of an uproar that from people that did UX and content strategy, and it was just, you know, there's no way I could put 20 different drop-downs in. So that's kind of a free text delivery, but also giving people the option to just expand a bit. UX designers are going to complain about everything, so I wouldn't worry about that. We'll just put designer in. Well, I'd be amazed if they complete the form in the first place. They'll be so cross. It's using Google Docs. They'll be uh, throwing their computers out the window. I had the misfortune of using uh, a checkout process that used WorldPay yesterday. I tweeted a screenshot of this interface. Oh, my God, how on earth? I I was joining an agency association, joining uh, DNAD. And their checkout process uses WorldPay. What a nightmare. But they're all horrible. You know, we do a lot of e-commerce stuff. and They're, they're almost, they're, if you think they're bad to actually complete, they're even worse to actually talk to uh, with your, with your, um, with your backend code and stuff. They're always a nightmare. They all seem to be based up in Newcastle as well. There seems to be a hotbed of all these companies that make things for selling money online. I'm going to put in what our daily rate is, typical daily rate. So I'm going to put 800. It's at the top end. But you did say that there's a range here. Yeah. So I'm going to actually put in 600 to 800 because that's a sort of – that's going to give us a a broad idea. You don't need pound signs in here, do you? No, no, no. Uh, I'll strip them out. Hourly rate, we don't do hourly rate. Experience, so 16 years. Uh, highest level of education. Uh, this is a good question because, you know, I do have a degree in something completely unrelated to what we do, which is the next question. What's the highest level of education related to your work? I've got to put none in here, really. I mean, the, clo- the closest thing is like A-level art. Yeah, I'm not sure they were doing web design back then. No, 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 what, what, back in the, uh, back back in in the, the mists days, of time? No. With the papyrus. They really, it wasn't not that. Font. wasn't that. We had chalk. Um Right, here we go. So where do you primarily work uh, from home at the moment? 
How do you primarily charge clients by the week? Is that new? Is that a new question? Uh, no, we had that one last year. Because I do find, I don't know what you do at MUD, but I do find it much, much simpler to estimate and quote by the week than by any other metric. We're still on old-fashioned day rates. Um, we're still coming into the 21st century. If you say that a project is going to be approximately 20 days, which is presumably how you quote, hmm. what happens if it comes in under or over? Do you expect somebody to pay for 24 days if you've estimated 20, or do clients expect a, a fixed price if, effectively? Well, we do a lot of work with non-profits and um, sort of, uh, sort of education section things. So very much, you know, they spent a long time trying to get their budgets and arguing for their budgets. So they tend to be quite fixed. I think what we tend to do um, is have regular review points and just ch- look if the functionality is going to change. Um, so if there's anything, any massive curveballs, we'll just have to flag that up early and say, you know, this is going to be extra. But we try, I mean, I say we try, we generally tend to sort of keep within budget. Um, and it's about, it's about what features you're selling. It's not just sort of here's some templates and they're going to be coded up. It's about identifying I suppose it's just the more questions you ask up front, the easier it is down the line. So we, we, quite, we do quite a lot of research up front, um, particularly on jobs that may be sort of a bit of information architecture work or, or user experience work. Um, and generally find that the more research we do up front, the easier things are down the line to get things, you know, uh, within budget, within time. But just trying to make, it's, it's just about having a constant conversation with the client so that if things do look like they're going to go over, it depends whose fault it is, you know. If we've massively underestimated how long it's going to take to sort of implement some JavaScript on something, that's kind of a hit we have to take, but then hopefully we'll learn from that. Um, if the clients change their mind about something very late in the process, then obviously we have to sort of try and articulate that to them and then try and make, hopefully make them pay for it. Do you do that planning and that research before you do the estimate? Or mm, No, but what we'll do is we'll sort of fa- we'll factor that in. Uh, so we'll usually have sort of stakeholder workshops um, as part of the budget up front. Um, yeah, I mean, this is all sort of quite, I'm, I'm the technical director, don't you know? So um, a lot of that side of things would be my business partner, Matt's dealing with, thankfully, because I was terrible at it as a freelancer. No, it's just we have this kind of weekly working routine regime Spit it out, son. Oh, bloody hell. But it is Friday morning. Um, and we use it as just a simpler way of actually just estimating. So we'll say to somebody, yeah, we think that this project's going to take, you know, and it's based on experience, but, you know, we think it's going to take six weeks. Um, and, but it's essentially, it's a fixed price contract. And we'll sit down at the beginning and work out overall what the project's going to include. And then, you know, they can change their mind along the way. But if they bring something in, like you say, like a real curveball, then you know, we make it fairly obvious to them that you're not likely to get that within the six weeks that we talked about, you know, as well as everything else. You know, something's got to give. Sure. You're sure. either going to leave something else out or you're going to roll it into another week. But I don't know. I've never, ever managed to make it work where you just have a day rate and keep charging and keep charging and keep charging until it's finished. I mean, I know people do that. No, we, I mean, we certainly don't have that approach in this essence that, you know, here's a blank check, here's long, how long we're going to think it's going to take. Um, I, I think one thing we're definitely looking at is trying to look at not crazy agile approaches, but look at a more agile way of working. So just be a bit more reflective about how we work um, and communicate with clients. 
Um, but that's very much in, in flux at the moment. Yeah, it takes a while to figure that out. We we still get it wrong every now and again. Well, how many um how many fee earners do you have then at Stuff and Nonsense? Two really, um, two and a new uh, developer who is working with us, but he's not employed by us at least not yet. Yeah. So yeah, me and Sue and uh, the developer. So do, do you find that weekly? Do you just translate that weekly billing to? Um, for both the fee owners, or do, you, do they buy both of you as a package? Well, you see, this is where it gets difficult, and, and I can't, I haven't quite figured it out. I was going to talk about it later on with, with the mud stuff, hmm. but I haven't quite grown up yet in terms hmm. of how we charge things. So I pick a day rate, and that translates, or a weekly rate, and that translates into the price of the job. So, you know, you might say that the job's going to be, I don't know, 10K, for example. But I don't break down what each person is doing and I don't charge separate for each person. Yeah. So I don't say, well, you know, I'm 800, but Sue is 600 and the developer is 400 or something like that. I don't work it out that way. And I don't then work out that, you know, on a day when Sue and a developer is working, it's a grand. I mean, is that how you do it? I'm just trying to think sort of about how that process works. I think sort of as soon as you, the the team scales, then that is just, that becomes a bit more complicated, a lot more complicated. Um, cause particularly I think sort of when I was freelancing, probably for yourself historically, um, if you're trying to work on site, that makes it very easy. You can delineate time working for a client and working on a project. But when you suddenly got sort of two, three of you trying to, um, I suppose juggle stuff and also your clients aren't always responsible again, working in that non-profit sector. Um, Where are you? Are you, are you outside Wandsworth prison? Oh, are you hearing the sirens? <laughs> we're we're out adjacent to one of the busiest junctions in Bath, um, well known for its concentration of very angry drivers. And we're near a fire station as well. Oh, that must have been what it was. Actually, I keep meaning to to get people on the, the podcast that have grown a business bigger than yours and mine. I mean, how many people at Mud now? That's a very good question. So we have a... We we got one and then we lost one and we've got another one starting. So we're just coming up to four plus a designer that's sort of not full time. So four and a half ish. So yeah, not a million Four-ish. miles away. You're not like twenty. Don't know if you want to come on to how mud's grown later, um, but we've we've been very clear about the kind of size we want and the the sort of the scale of the business and how that's going to scale. So we've got very strong ideas about you know we don't want to be this mega big agency. We just want to keep it small. Small and perfectly formed. Well, I do want to ask people um, that have grown businesses a little bit because it does fascinate me. And I don't know how you would actually price up a job in that. We had to, to fill in a, a, a big proposal for a, a London council fairly recently. Um, they had a, a pricing template that they wanted people to fill in as part of the, the pitch. And there was literally um, a box for the day rate of each type of person. They had a yeah, junior designer, mid-level designer, Cre- you know, senior designer, creative director, art director, copywriter, all this kind of stuff. They had all these breakdowns and they expected people to fill in what everybody's day rate was. Yeah. And of course, you know, we had to just put a big pencil through that because they we don't have all of those people. I just think that maybe because we do a lot of those jobs that maybe we could just add up those rates together. But that, I don't think we'd have got the job if we'd have done that. Well, it depends. I mean, it, it, you, you obviously, if you're all working on it together, then the amount of time spent doing it would be less. So. Well, obviously, if someone's buying clients buying my time on something, 
our rate will be higher than, uh, or they'll be paying more than they would if they if our junior developers doing work. Sorry, not junior developer now. We've got a new one. He's not so junior. Um, but yeah, I mean, it varies. It depends on the client, depends on the project. Um, it depends how, I suppose. I think a lot of the work we do is redesigned. So they'll come to us and they'll want, so, you know, they'll have a website that's not performing particularly well. Um, and it's looking a bit dated and they'll want really us to put it into a new content management system and redesign it. So that's kind of an agency job. We're all sort of, all, all fingers involved in, in the various parts of that delivery. All hands to pump. Um, but very often we'll have sort of much more select work that we'll do. So we may go in and then do some design work on some email templates or we may do some, um, some user research or we may do some, um, back end development or something. And that's very specifically tied to an individual. So we can be much more selective and, and specific about the amount we're charging for that kind of work. Well, we're doing some stuff at the moment. I'm going to be going off back into Manchester in the next few weeks. And it's quite easy for me to charge out my time on this particular project. And while I'm doing that, Sue's going to be working on some more kind of just graphic design projects. You know, we've actually got some print work that we need to do some merchandising for a client, which is going to be really nice to do. Um, and it's quite easy to quote that as well. But when, when there are two or three people, you know, when you've got me and I might not be doing all the design work, but I might be, you know, certainly overseeing it, talking to the client every day. You've got Sue who's doing a lot of the, the graphic design stuff. And maybe you've got a developer. I haven't figured out how you charge for that yet. I mean, you know, do you charge three lots of day rates for that or do you just have a higher you know studio rate which is typically what we've tried to do in the past i think what we'll do is if something like that we'd have a studio rate and then we just have to really break down the different components of that and, and just keep an eye on how much time i mean one of the things we do quite diligently is about time tracking and it's not really to keep an eye on staff time it's just to keep an eye on whether we're being accurate and also just to have that top level view on profitability really and just see if what we're saying is a job's going to take the amount of time it's going to take if that's accurate because that can have a massive effect on your profit margins oh god yeah i mean and on scheduling too when things overrun oh definitely yeah which has always been my biggest issue and i suppose that's the downside of having a day rate rather than say a week rate a week rate is much easier to sort of block a, p- a period of time a day rate you're much more having to juggle a lot more stuff so that that then just does lead to lots of scheduling complications and confusion well, I know I've said this before, but the weekly thing does work well for us because, you know, it's simpler to organize and I'm a terrible multitasker. So <laughs> it means that, you know, we start on a Monday, we finish on a Friday. If we've got our estimates right, then, you know, we have the weekend off. If we don't get our estimates right, then sometimes I work a weekend just to make sure that, you know, we've, we know we've, you slip. we've let a bit slip because, you know, I want to, I'm starting a new thing next week and, I mean, it's just my own state of mind. I don't want other things that I've just left, you know? I, I'm not one for yeah. dust. I can't sweep things under the carpet in a in an omnifocus to-do list. <laughs> I have to have everything done before I move on to the next thing. Otherwise, you know, it's it's nagging at me. Yeah, I suppose I'm very similar, although I don't tend to adopt your approach to deal with it. Uh, so I end up dusty and a bit battered around the edges sometimes well you are an archaeologist mate yes that is true so dust is part of your of your makeup well d- dust dust is a uh, other people's rubbish isn't it i don't know i generate quite a lot of my own and skin i suppose yeah. Ooh, no let's not oh. let's not go oh. there uh, let's flick back to the form a little bit because i had that bit um do you charge a fixed rate or does your rate vary between clients it varies 
because that's what negotiations for kids. Mm. Do you use a contract? Yes. Are you a limited company? Yes. Is Mud Limited? Yes. Is freelancing your sole source of income? Oh, I'm going to have to untick that because my royalties and things like that don't necessarily come from freelancing. So, well, it's all wrapped up together. Yeah. Do you normally request a deposit? Right. Now, this is an interesting one because what we do is we ask for a week up front and then we bill on a weekly basis. So I don't know whether actually broken my form. I've broken your form. I, I, there isn't, I, doesn't, I don't fit your mould, mate. <sighs> I suppose it, it comes under fixed amount, doesn't it? Yes. Because that's going to change according to the weekly rate. But yeah, there we go. So let's put fixed amount. What are your normal invoicing terms? Well, it's going to have to be less than seven days. No, normally it's, like I said, it's a week in advance. Hmm. So they've broken your form. So you're negative. Uh, well, you see, that's why nobody owes us any money. But I'm going to put less than seven days because zero is less than seven days. Do you do mostly work with clients as opposed to freelancers and subcontracting? So we're not going to do that. What's the average of products that you work on? Yeah, not as high as people think, actually. I'm going to put on here five to ten grand because I don't know about you, but that tends to be the kind of range that, you know, the average client wants. I do wish that we got to work on some, you know, higher value, higher, um, profile work sometimes but you know we're lucky to do what we do average time working on a project one to three months how many projects do you work on at one time only one project at one time that's key to us because i am hopeless at multitasking do you have an accountant damn right we do do you use any accounting software ah you see well i see i don't do the accounts so i don't have a right to influence this but we still use a creaking old copy of sage sage instant from i think it's now about 14 years old is it in ms dos no it's not it it's running in windows 95 windows xp sorry not 95 windows xp on a virtual machine on sue's computer so i am too embarrassed to fill that in because i don't i'm not free agent users like all the cool kids. They are very good. Tell us a bit more about yourself. Mail, I think. Do you need my postcode? What do you need my postcode for? Well, the, the, this is born of sort of trying to separate out things into sort of need to know and nice to have. Um, and I think so one of the things in last year, um, I've been in the past suffering from mental health problems. And it seems to be a lot of conversation about it at the moment. And I'm very interested in more of this. Like, like you said at the start, the lifestyle, the stuff around business, how hard we work. Postcode's not a part of that, obviously, but, um, these starting to ask questions about just the sort of the demographic makeup, really, of people that work in our sector. Cause, you know, location and age is fine. Um, but it'd be really useful to find a bit more, you know, to have some meat. So we have all these massive spats regularly about sort of gender diversity in our industry, but there's very little data to back that up. So starting to get that kind of information may be useful. No, I completely, completely agree. What is your ethnic group? Do you have a disability, physical or mental impairment that has a substantial and long-term negative effect on your ability to do daily duties? I'm going to take yes to that one because, you know, I do struggle with some of the issues that you struggle with. And, and have done for a long time. 
And I suppose as as a creative person, no matter how you want to kind of decide that, I'm not making things with my hands. I'm not making My Little Ponies, which is what was my first job in the whole world, was making My Little Ponies in a factory. It's your fault, is it? Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you a story offline about uh, about skiving in the My Little Pony factory. But, you know, it's what we do involves thinking and, and you need your head in the right place to be able to do that. And if, and if it isn't for whatever reason, then, you know, that does have a, a, a major impact. We'll talk about that another time. I do want to come back. I do want to talk to you particularly about the mental health stuff another time, but I don't know whether sure. it's a conversation for today. Maybe in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Some other bits and pieces here. Married children, primary earner. Health and lifestyle, physical health. You see, very good, I'm going to put in here now. Is that all you're swimming? This is all the thing. I am getting better. So I'm just going to fill these in. How many hours a day do you normally work? Yeah, I'm going to put more than 10. That's bad, isn't it? Well, it's a, it's a curse. I think sort of, it's definitely, it's not specific to our industry because it seems to be, you know, you go to traditional design agencies and there's an expectation to work lots of hours. And we seem to sort of, put a lot of that expectation on ourselves to do it because we want to, not because we have to. Um, but yeah, I mean, that can lead to a lot of burnout, but also it's just because a lot of us are perfectionists. A lot of us just want to, uh, and a lot of us enjoy what we do. We got into this because we liked it. And it was a bit of a hobby. How many caffeinated drinks a day do you consume? Is this, it must be a new question. This was last year. Um, and I, I, I put the quality clarification on it because people were unsure whether they could put tea in there. But um, I think the, uh, this is a very personal one for me because I gave up caffeine a year and a half ago or so. Um, and it's seeing how much people around me drink, like energy drinks in the morning to get going. And then when and I used to, you know, I used to drink sort of five, six strong coffees a day. Um, but I was having trouble sleeping. I was irritable in the morning and I was just not focusing very well. And the, the thing I noticed when I stopped drinking caffeine was that I, I just, I was realizing how tired I was and how much what I was drinking was just masking my body trying to talk to me. So I still drink a lot of decaffeinated coffee. I still love coffee. And that's the one thing I hate is that people assume if you don't drink caffeine that you don't drink nice coffee. I'm a bit worried about how much caffeine people drink because it's particularly sort of younger developers because it's, you know, it's not a sustainable way of working, really. I had to give up caffeine when I quit smoking. Because you were drinking too much? No, it was because nicotine is a caffeine inhibitor. So I would be able to, you know, drink an espresso and go to sleep like that because the nicotine was, was counteracting the effects of the caffeine. And then when I quit that, man, I was, I mean, it took me a couple of weeks to, to really figure out what was happening, but I felt terrible. I mean, really, really terrible, always on edge, literally kind of, you know, like burning up from the inside almost. And it turns out, yeah, we were actually, it was the last time that I went to Brighton, which was uh, for an event, that a uh, little event that Aral put on. I remember standing at, I think it was Victoria Railway Station, with a cup of coffee in my hand, and it must have been my third cup of coffee that day. I mean, I got up, made one at home, picked one up at Crew Station, picked another one up in London. It was my third, you know, strong um, coffee shop coffee of the day. And literally standing there shaking and like with blurred vision. And Sue said, it's got to be the coffee. And it was. Um, and now I can't even drink a can of Coke without freaking out. I'll, I'll slip in occasionally time to time some caffeine. Like I do teaching um, one day a month in Greenwich. 
Um, and it's like a four hours each way commute, sort of leave at six, get home at 10 in the evening. It's a great, great, I'm really glad I do it. It's a really good experience and, um, kids are great. Kids, most of them, are, most of them are mature students. But, um, but that's the one day I sort of do need to hit the caffeine because it's such a long day and, you know, you're focusing all day, you're having to concentrate. So, um, that's my week, one weakness, I think. Well, I've started to hit the gym. I've got a three month. I thought you said the gin. No, the gin. <laughs> or do you like a gin? Eleven in the morning. Um, we shall come on to that in a minute. But no, I've started to hit the gym and I was there yesterday morning at seven thirty and there are other guys sitting there. I mean, these are serious bodybuilding training people. I mean, you know, they've got arms the width of my thighs or bigger, you know? They're big guys. And they're all sitting there mixing up this cocktail, which was bright blue actually and fizzy. And it was full of basically minerals and vitamins and an enormous amount of caffeine. And I asked Liam, my trainer, what the hell this stuff was. And he said, it's like a can of Monster, but like 10 of them. And these guys take that stuff, you know, before they train, just so that they can completely destroy their muscles. And I think one of those would just blow me, blow my head off. I think I'll be in hospital, let alone in a gym. So let's get past that one. I have no caffeinated drinks a day. How often do you have an alcoholic drink? Oh, monthly or less, because I'm not a big drinker. Anything missing? No, submit. There we go. So that was easy. People should do this. People should fill in your survey, Cole. I believe that it's probably good that they do. Can you, I mean, you launched it this morning yep. and it's now, what, Friday coming up to noon. So can you tell how many people have filled it in so far? If you bear with me a second. It's a fascinating podcast where people Google things. Looking at something else that you did while you're looking that up, because you made on back on the back of the, the previous survey data, you made a tool which is a UK freelancer rate calculator. Yeah. Which basically you put in where you are and what you do, and it gives you um, what it suggests is the daily rate that you should charge. And I did this actually, and it said that my recommended daily rate is three hundred and one pound twenty four. <laughs> I'd run that down if I were you. Which is slightly lower than than I charge for what we do here. But coincidentally, it's just slightly less than we pay our freelancers. So uh, so that was quite cool. So you're armed now to go back to them and say you're charging too much. Well, uh, I don't know. I mean, how, this is a serious question. I'm happy paying them the rate that they want to be charged, that they want to charge. Um are you one of the people that sort of people that thinks that if you give somebody, let's say, a guaranteed amount of work per month or you are hiring them for, let's say, 20 days rather than two days, that somehow you should get a discount? No, no, we don't. I mean, we, we use quite a lot of freelancers and we tend to generally pay their day rate. Yeah, I've never been comfortable just saying, you know, well, we're going to give you a whole load of work, so can we have a discount? I think that's somehow a little bit, I don't know. Maybe a little, not good for business, but a little bit disrespectful. Yeah. I mean, the one thing we do tend to do, which I don't know is quite how common it is, but we tend to ask people to work on site. And that's just really just not to keep an eye on what they're doing, but to have them involved in the process. Also, I think it helps you to get to know people a bit better. Yeah. And they might get to know you a bit better. And I hate to use the word culture. Yeah, well, we're, we're a small agency, so it's really important that everyone gets along and that there's communication. And, you know... I do despair sometimes at how dependent we become on digital communication. You know, sending a hip chat message to a guy that's sitting opposite you to get his attention when you could just ask a question and just go. 
Well, that's the same thing with client communication as well, I think. I mean, I would much rather go and spend a couple of days like I do in Manchester, sitting with the client while we go through stuff, rather than, you know, write up a report, and, you know, or, oh, God forbid, base camp. Yeah. Let's talk about your business in a minute. Cool. A little bit more. I want to talk about mud a bit more. But um, can we just do our second sponsor for the day? Certainly. Which is, is Ghost Lab. Is this a tool that you use? I'm afraid not. You're um, a bad man. Ghost Lab is synchronized cross-browser and mobile testing taken to the next level. So here's the problem, right? You're designing or you're developing a site and you need to test that site across multiple browsers and especially across multiple devices like phones and tablets. So you could set up a local development server or you could FTP files to an external server, but who the hell wants to do that? Then there's keeping all the devices in sync while you test. You know, you're moving around a site, you're using navigation, you're filling in forms. You need like three pairs of hands. And that's where Ghost Lab comes in because Ghost Lab synchronizes everything across different browsers and devices. So as you do something in one browser or on one device, it happens across all the others instantly. It's like magic. And you click on a link in a desktop browser and it gets pressed on the smartphone. And you type something into a form input on a tablet and it gets filled in across every browser or device that's connected to Ghost Lab. So here's how it works. You install the Ghost Lab app on your Mac or PC and then you drag any HTML site into the Ghost Lab window. And that's it. That's all you have to do. Ghost Lab does everything else for you. And then from there, you can open your site in any installed browser or you can point a device on the same network to the Ghost Lab IP address. And the great part with Ghost Lab is that there's not an app that you have to install on all these devices. It just uses the browser. And that's any browser. Ghost Lab keeps a watch on your project and it pushes any changes that you make to every connected browser or device. And this makes designing using code, which a lot of us do, HTML, CSS, JavaScript, really simple. And Ghost Lab's not a subscription service. You don't have to pay monthly for the software. You just buy it. That's what I prefer. And Ghost Lab costs 33 of our English pounds per user. And you can install it on two computers, say a desktop and a laptop. And that's what I've done. And there are volume discounts available too. So go to unfinished.bz slash Ghost Lab and go get Ghost Lab. Looks great. And um, I'm just looking at this site and they also do a rather swanky um, handheld device sort of Velcro thing. Yeah, the device lab stand. We talk about that some weeks. I just realized I made a mistake in that sponsor read because I said of our English pounds, which I know, obviously Welsh pounds, but Scottish pounds too for the time being. Yeah, not for long. I don't know. I, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure which way that. Uh, that particular works uh, particular vote's going to go do you know which way you want it to go i for purely selfish reasons i would like it to vote yes because i think that it would provide a real shake up to our british political scene and i think we desperately desperately need that um and i think for the scots themselves you know they they get away from the Tories forever. That would be one benefit for them. Um, so for purely selfish, kind of not anarchic, but sort of anti-establishment reasons, um, and just because I think that it would shake things up, I would like them to vote yes. Well, I think I'm on the very same page as you. Uh, having lived in Scotland for a while, 
Um, I was a bit hesitant at first to seeing it being an SNP debate, a sort of Scottish nationalist debate, but it's not. It's a very much, a, I think, an opportunity to just try something different because I think there's a lot of consensus that things aren't working at the moment. I know sort of your old friend Billy Bragg's been sort of saying very similar things. You know, this is an opportunity to reimagine politics in, um, in Britain. I mean, it's very off, to- off topic, but there's a fantastic book called The Common Wheel, W-E-A-L, um, which is a really nice book that's been done as part of it. It's very, it's independent, not independence, independent. And it's, um, it's a really nice book on how you might do a new political landscape in Scotland. I really wish that they would have had the opportunity to potentially have this vote 20 or even 30 years ago. I think it would have been a very different landscape then, uh, particularly before the North Sea oil ran out mm. or, you know, has dropped to the levels that it has. I mean, I, I, I'm off to Norway in a few weeks and just simply what they did to their society um, and their standard of living overall based on what they did for the citizens in terms of investing oil money, oil revenues, mm. is is absolutely staggering compared to what, of course, we did, which is to give all of that revenue to rich oil barons. It squandered. So we do digress. That is another, topic for another day and possibly another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't mind, actually. I don't mind talking about lots of different things on here because, you know, as I said to Laura last week, my interpretation of this is that, you know, there's just unfinished business, which is, you know, stuff that we can talk about. And I don't mind what that stuff is. And this is good, actually. Your survey has taken us on a, taken us on a real journey. You know, there's lots of stuff that we can come back to and talk about another day, I think. Do you want to know how many responses there have been? Yes, please. 111. That's not bad. You've, what is it now? Three hours. Yeah. We just need to do a little bit more tweeting. And, uh, I think everybody should fill that out. Yes. You started that survey when you were freelance, and uh-huh. now you're technical director of MUD, yep. which by all accounts seems to be going very well. You were you were nominated for Best New Agency, I think, at the Net Awards this year. Yep. Which Some was, do-gooders in Australia won it. I don't think. It was the taking part that counts. It was definitely the taking. I was going to say something cynical, but no, it was definitely the taking part. There were much better podcasts than this one. <laughs> but no, by all accounts, you've been doing very well, and you've been headhunting for for new staff uh, recently. I saw you were looking for a designer and a developer. So we're doing a similar thing. I mean, I tell you what, I was thinking about this in the car on the way back from the swim pool this morning. You are, or mud is, where I would have liked stuff to have been 10 years ago, but better. Oh, thank you. Because I've always been incredibly risk averse, particularly when it comes to expanding or hiring people. A, because I'd never really wanted to run a business. I was quite happy um, just noodling about for myself. And also because I didn't know how. And I didn't want to make a wrong decision and, and things go belly up. But whereas, you know, you seem to have, have been really bold. Yeah, well, we've had, um, I mean, sort of a bit of background. I've been freelance for, I think, three years and moved down to the southwestern Scotland probably about three years ago now. And I was doing some freelance work with Matt, my business partner. We do a lot of work with the Expression Engine together. Um, and he just got in touch saying, you know, I, I, I like you. We get along really well. Um, he'd be running a small agency just with one employee. I wanted to know if we wanted to go into business together. Um, and certainly that was just perfect timing for me. I think I was getting quite frustrated as a freelancer and working on my own and the ability to sort of make decisions like you're talking about with someone else was really 
that was a really eye-opening opportunity for me. But one of the things that Matt did at early doors was get someone on board as a chair, chairman for the business. So, and that's been really instrumental, having someone that can come in from outside and just sort of every month have a look at your figures, have a look at sort of the business trajectory and also offer their expertise in some of the key decisions you might make, whether that's a hire or whether that's taking on office space or whether that's, you, you, you know, sort of how much we spend as a business on X, Y, Z. Um, and I suppose the other, the other aspect of, uh, that that brought to us is just diligence, putting really good processes in place and making sure that we're capturing the right kind of information that can help guide business decisions, um, making sure that we've got a financial director that comes in and just helps us look at our finances um, and make sense of them. Because, you know, you can capture all, It's the same with the survey, the freelance survey. You know, you can capture all this data, but unless you've got someone to help you make sense of it, it's just numbers. Um, and that's been it's really invaluable. It sounds very serious and very um, potentially quite expensive. But, you know, having these people on board that are not part... They're part of the company, but they're not sort of full-time parts of the company. It takes some of the weight off and it also helps give you perspective. Um, and that's really... Let's go back to sort of your point earlier... That's really helped us have the confidence to be in the position we're in where we can decide when and when we hire and um, what kind of work we take on. And, and you know, having the ability to say no to certain jobs. You know, I think as a freelancer, I, very, I was very bad at saying no to things. But as a business now, we've got quite a lot of confidence in what kind of work we do and who we work for and what kind of clients we want to work for. We had our first, I think, I think last month we had our first sort of, we turned away some work uh, for ethical reasons. You know, we, we didn't, we're quite a fun. We said, you know, we don't agree with what you're doing and we don't um, want to work with that kind of company. It's nothing personal. And they were fine with it. But that, that was such a, a really nice thing to have the confidence to be able to do that, to have, be selective about the kind of work you do. A total kind of digression for a minute. I need to come back to the, to the point I was going to, the question that I was going to ask. But uh, do you publish that ethical statement on the site yet? We don't. Um, I mean, it's, it's basically sort of, one of the things that we've been trying to do as uh, in our monthly board meetings is trying to come up with like a strategy, which is, it's been kind of difficult because the strategy is kind of us. Um, um, but we want to sort of try and share, you know, just at least have a sort of a, a, a series of words or sayings or phrases that we can use to sort of, like, to, 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 I suppose, you know, like a, a star to guide the ship by, if you will. Um, and, oh, you know, <laughs> we said this, uh, I think sort of very early doors when we well, I was first talked to Matt about sort of working together, we both said, you know, we both kind of left of centre. So, you know, we don't want to work for Tory cigarettes or, or, um, arms, you know, just very, it's very basic, but very, um, it's, it's pretty essential. You know, we don't, these are the kinds of company we don't want to be working for. Um, it's pretty much exactly the same as us. Yeah. Uh, alcohol, tobacco and firearms or whatever. Uh, so yeah, so, but that's, uh, you know, it's, it's just, we, we don't publish that. And I don't know, I don't know, maybe, I don't know if we should. I mean, it's, it's, I think you shouldn't be, you know, something like a strategy for a business shouldn't be hidden away. It should be very open because it needs to be accessible to the people that work there for a start. But also it's a really great way for clients to get a sense of who you are before they engage you or before they even approach you to see if you want to work on their website. And um, so maybe it's something we should be more forthright with. The question I was going to ask before we digressed a little bit was your chairman, is he a, or he or she, um, are, are they, is he, she, how do you even do he, this? He, it's a he for a start. His name's Chris. It's a he, it's a he. Good. Let's yeah. just call him Chris because that makes my life a lot easier. <laughs> um, is he a shareholder? No, no. He's, um, and I, I don't, 
I'm not fully understand, uh, understand sort of the origins of getting involved with Chris. It's certainly Matt had been talking with him before. He was talking to me um, about going into business together. But Chris is basically uh, used to run a digital agency in Bristol um, for several years, and now sort of that was quite successful. And he's gone off now and to essentially do the same thing he does for us, but for five, lots of younger companies with an idea to sort of just spend sort of four, five, six years helping companies. You know, a bit like sort of. Sort of Dragon's Den type thing, you know, watch over us, help us. Um, I mean, we pay him for it. and there, But the other thing to know is that there are grants available to do that. Um, there's a lot of business, local business grants to help you with sort of training and, and guidance. Um, but it, it's always the view is that it's only going to be sort of a five, six year arrangement to really help us on our way. And then hopefully he can go on and then help another young company and help guide them. And it's not just web. He does, he, he works with people in sort of content, marketing, video and film. Um, and, you know, he's got quite, a, I think, sort of six or seven people he does it with. I love that idea. Why have why have we not talked about this before? Um, I think, I mean, it's, I think it's something that, you know, we as an industry, we're very good at helping other people. You know, we, and certainly that was one of the attractions to me coming to the web from archaeology, which was, it's an industry that, well, archaeology is kind of weird because it's about public knowledge and just sort of furthering our knowledge of the past. But actually everyone doing it was kind of secretive and hoarding their information. And that wasn't necessarily their fault. That's just how funding works. You know, you just, everyone was controlling their little pools. And they're moving into the web. So I remember first meeting you in 2007 at Highland Fling. Yes. And uh, it, it was just people that were sort of, you know, I, I considered to be industry experts and were, were happily sort of exchanging their knowledge and helping share and pass that information on. Um, and as an industry, we're really good at it. But I think there definitely is a need to sort of have a much more structured way of doing it. And certainly people that are, you know, not retirement age, but people giving their time to be able to help other businesses. I can remember years and years and years ago, and I don't like to be, you know, to, to be nasty to people, but we had a, a, a business advisor that came from a, uh, it was recommended by the local council, basically. It was like one of these local kind of uh, enterprise agencies and a uh, lovely fella, but didn't really understand what we wanted to do. Um, certainly didn't understand the creative side of things and was all about lots of process. I mean, not just process for, you know, accounting, but process for everything, which, you know, didn't really sit well with me personally. Um, and I didn't find it particularly valuable, but actually having somebody that inspires you to do better. I love that idea. I mean, I've talked about him before, but my friend Joe, who is my inspirational person in the world. If there was one person that I had to ask advice from, it would always be him. And to have somebody like that that could actually guide you, you know, whether it was every month or every quarter. How often do you see Chris? Once a month. Right. See, that's perfect. They can just give you that extra bit of inspiration or that little bit of extra input because, you know, we're all busy doing what we do every day. And sometimes we don't have a lot of time to actually sit and think about our own businesses and have somebody from the outside go, well, why haven't you called them? Well, as Joe always does to me, yeah. you know, I say to him, oh, I'd love to work with this particular charity. And he'd go, well, just call them. What are you waiting for? <laughs> um, that's, that's excellent. I'm definitely going to think, I'm definitely going to think about that. I think it's, all, you know, particularly as a business starting out as well, having someone that's really able to ask difficult questions, things that you might sort of, Going into business with someone else, you may sort of poodle around certain issues. You know, it's very important to be upfront with a business partner, but you know, there's certain things you probably don't want to talk about or um, might feel uncomfortable talking about. And having someone just actually just being, you know, asking plain and frank in front of you and just 
forcing you to think about things you probably weren't going to think about otherwise. It's just been really invaluable. Oh, no, I love that idea. When you've been hunting for staff, I mean, I know that you've you actually put uh, did you use authentic jobs this time? We did. We don't have a great deal of success with it, I have to say, but that's just, I think Bath's quite a difficult place to recruit. I think it's got a very small catchment. We're right next to Bristol, but it's kind of hard because Bristol's got its own pool. I mean, it's a very blossoming, thriving sort of digital centre, Bristol now. So getting people out of Bristol into Bath is quite tricky. And Bath itself is a very expensive place to live. So it's, um, it's, it's quite a hard place to attract people. I get now because I can use your tool. I can use the uh, the rate calculator. Yeah. How I can tell how much I'm supposed to be paying a freelancer. Um, but how do you decide on how much to pay a a developer? Which is what we would do. You know, we would want to hire a developer. I've talked about this before. Yeah. How the hell do you even know how much to put down as a salary range? Well, we um, for the two roles that we were hiring for, which is developer, which I should take off authentic jobs because we filled that out, um, and the designer. We kind of. What was interesting is at a board meeting, we had ideas about what we wanted to charge and they, it all matched up. You know, we all sort of put our ideas in and they all seemed to be correlate to what we thought, um, it would be. And then it's really sort of, you've got a range and you sort of, if someone's interested in the job, you ask them where they want to be on the range. And usually, yeah, obviously they want to be at the top, but you have a conversation. So, you know, what you want at the moment? What, what is your experience? And, you know, we, we, we sort of, we may not, we're not as competitive as certainly a lot of our larger agencies and we definitely sort of missed out on some hires because of that. But what we can do is offer a culture and a work life and, you know, me and Matt both have children and get, working together was very much about trying to have a lifestyle business, you know, where we weren't sort of working all hours God sends. And that's, like I said earlier, about the idea of scaling the business is just to keep it small and it's like a family business almost. I'm hoping that's a big pull for some people, particularly people with children, to have that kind of bit more relaxed attitude to agency work. Um, but it's been difficult to put it, um, sort of recruiting, I have to say. And it's, you know, it's a time consuming thing. I, I've had to hand up sort of feel really bad because there's lots of people that I haven't replied to that have applied for the job. And it's, it's very time consuming to go through applications, to interview. Um, and as a small business that's trying to put, produce work, it's very difficult to actually make that, make that time. Well, I'm definitely at the stage where we need to be. Um, we need to be doing more. I want to be doing more. Um, and I want to be, I want to be working with other people. Yeah. I mean, you know, having a Sue here is, is, uh, is, is fabulous and that's being wonderful from the creative side of things. Um, but I need somebody to take over the technical stuff and I'm not just talking about writing code. I want to, I want somebody to do what you're doing at Mud, which is really just to direct the technical direction mm. and just make sure that we're doing everything technically to, you know, to, to the best of our abilities, even if that means, you know, doing some stuff which, you know, I'm fundamentally terrified of, you know, using the command line and doing Git and all that kind of stuff, which, you know, I sit down on a Saturday morning sometimes thinking, well, I must get better at this. And, you know, then I watch Star Trek. And that's not good <laughs> enough. You know, that's not good enough. We need we need somebody to... Uh, you need some kind of Picard does command line tutorials, isn't it? Oh, well, you see, that would be perfect. And I'm sure that there's some out there. I know I I really admire what you're doing. I'm mean, not just sort of you know fanboy moment. I I I really like what you're doing and some of those ideas that you talked about today in terms of getting external advice. Um, I think is brilliant. It's going to give me a lot to think about. Oh, thanks. Um, and yeah, and I and I recommend you. I don't know whether you've ever picked up anything, but you know, I, I'm happy to recommend people that where I like their work, and most importantly, 
I know that somebody's going to get looked after. Because, you know, the worst thing with a recommendation is that you give potential clients somebody's number or email address. And, you know, I always ask them, you know, two or three weeks later, I'll, I'll send an email and say, did you, uh, did you get a good experience? And they will say, oh, so-and-so never got back to me. And that's, you know, that's terrible. I wouldn't, you know, that, that's going to stop a recommendation in the sure. future. Um, but I do it with you guys. Oh, thank you. Um, and I'm thinking, actually, this is an idea that I've had. I got the idea from Marco Arment. So do you use his uh, Overcast podcast app? I do not, I'm afraid. It's a good podcast app if you like podcast apps. And what he does on, I think it's like the credits page or the about page or something like that. There's a, there's a, a section there and it says, um, if Overcast isn't for you, here are some other great podcast clients. And he lists and links to the competition, which I think is brilliant. I've actually been thinking that what I'm going to do is I'm going to set up a page or a panel on our site where, you know, cause we know we're not everybody's cup of tea. You know, people might not like the apes. They might think we're too expensive or whatever, you know? They might not apes be. Apes are too expensive. That's why we're so expensive is because of the apes. So having something on there that says, you know, if we're not right for you, here are some friends that we recommend. I, th- I think everybody should do that. What was the, um, oh, that reminds me of, what was that, uh, uh, the Brit Pack? Do you remember that? Well, I do remember that. Yeah. Oh. I mean, that was, that was a, that was a silly thing that people got the wrong idea about. <laughs> I, I was really fond of the Brit Pack, though. Yeah, sort of qualify this for people that may not have heard. Well, what it was was that everybody in the old days when they had blogs, they also used to have blog rolls. And there were links down the side of the page which would link to, you know, people whose blogs you liked. And it wasn't necessarily to individual articles. It was to a person. I remember, you know, I think my early blog role have had, you know, everybody from Jason Santamaria to Jeremy Keith to Sean Inman or whoever. And they would be blog roles. And I just grouped all the Brits together and just called them the Brit Pack. And it was just people that I knew, John Oxen, John Hicks, Ian Lloyd, um, Jeremy Keith, Andy Budd, lots of these people. Um, and from there, and because we all communicated pre-Twitter, really, um, just through leaving comments on each other's blog posts, I think Drew McClellan actually set up a Brit Pack mailing list, and that was that. And we used to talk to each other via this kind of private email list. And that was that. Um, and I think, as always happens, you know, people thought that it might be a little kind of too cliquey, and they used to say things like, how can I join? Well, you know, it's not a question of joining. It was a question of being friends with friends. You know, anybody could, you know, join if they wanted to. Um, and that was that. And, you know, like all these things, it just kind of faded away in time. Gone but not forgotten. It was a bit of fun. And John Hicks actually did a really nice uh, logo of uh, underpants logo, Union Jack underpants. That's what I think we should do. I think, you know, there's, there is generally enough work around for people. And I, and I do like the idea of having a little panel on our site where I will uh, link to you and to, you know, two or three other people whose, whose, whose work I like. That's very kind. Thank you. I don't just think people should do that quid pro quo. Listen, yes. I think we should wrap it up. And then if you've got time and people still want to listen, then we can talk about comics in a minute. Brilliant. Sounds good. For anybody that now we've got over the business stuff, you just want to like get on with your day. You can, people can follow you, Cole. You're on Twitter. You are at Cole007. Or people can follow me at Malarkey to ask questions or suggest topics. You can message this show on Twitter at unfinished. BZ, or you can email me 
he has at unfinished.bz. Thanks again to our fabulous sponsors this week. They were Big Board and Ghost Lab. As always, you can support our show by supporting them. Now, if we had a theme tune, then I'd do the theme tune, but we don't have a theme tune. Now we can relax. You can kick your slippers off. You can, you can chill. Oh, dear. Now, I know people grumble about me just talking about films when they think this is supposed to be about a business podcast. So we won't talk about films. We won't just talk about films. Let's talk about films and comics. Sounds good. I know you, me, and Paul Boag. We are all, and, and, and a few other people, I think, in the country. We are huge fans of 2000 AD comics. Do you still get 2000 AD? Not anymore. Not for years. You've got a personal connection somehow to 2000 AD, I seem to remember. I don't, th- I don't know if I have. I don't know. Wasn't your granddad Pat Mills or somebody? If only. Although I do have a very awesome pair of grandfathers, but no, they weren't involved in comics. Oh. Uh, I have a connection to Roger Hargreaves, but that's a slightly different uh, genre. Roger Hargreaves? You know, the Mr. Men guy. Oh, him? Yeah, I've got lots of... My dad did lots of work with him in the 80s, so I've got lots of signed books by him. And I've got this fantastic drawing of Mr. Tall he did for me, which is a bit psychic, really, because I wasn't tall at the time, so he obviously knew I was going to be quite tall. Now, I started reading 2000 AD. It was issue one... In 1977, and I had that comic, and it had the Space Spinner was the free gift on the cover, which is like a little Frisbee. It was probably mid-80s, so a bit of a late come, I'm afraid. You weren't even born in 1977, were you? I was, I was. Were you? Yeah. Oh, okay. I'm coming up to 40. I had all of those early editions. I had the ones that was, um, I think it was issue two or three, that had some stickers that you're supposed to stick on your arm that were, uh, they were for Mac 1. I remember Mac 1, he was the robot. Yeah. No, when he was a cyborg. Was he? he was basically 2000 AD's equivalent of the Bionic Man. Before my time, I'm afraid. You must remember the Bionic Man. Oh, I remember my man. Uh, Lee Majors, was it? No, that's a six billion dollar man. Yeah, that's the one. I'm yeah. getting confused now. No, well, the six million dollar man was Bionic. He was rebuilt. We can rebuild him. No, I haven't. I haven't read much. Um, I didn't read much past the sort of early eighties, really. But I, I just, I just love those old stories. I've been buying some of the trade paperbacks recently. I sort of fell, fell out with comics for a long time. I think sort of when I started doing academic stuff and just got distracted by boring, geeky books on pottery and stuff. Um, but I'm definitely getting more into it now. And um, interesting, I went to I was on holiday in London, and they had an exhibition on the role of comics in or British comics in the comic industry and it was fascinating like how subversive they were you know sort of Viva Vendetta Watchmen all that sort of all the writers and artists from the late 80s and early 90s and I suppose it was just really fortunate that when I got into comics was this really rich time you know we were starting to get colour comic colour stories rather than just colour covers on things um, and then you had sort of sort of splinter magazines I don't know if you ever saw do you remember Crisis or Toxic no, I don't. They were sort of um, spin-offs from 2000 AD, but for a sort of more mature audience. But some really sort of, you know, really storylines that just wouldn't appear in 2000 AD about sort of um, politics and uh, homosexuality and AIDS and just things that were just completely taboo in a kid's comic. But the same artists, the same story writers, just getting the chance to flex their muscles a bit more. It's some really great stuff. Well, I mean, there was obviously Alan Moore came out of 2000 AD. Yeah, all, and, all, so all the big writers and artists, and you think of all the people that have gone on to then to do, like Simon Bisley. I don't you know Simon Bisley, sort of very painted, 
paintorial work, is now doing a lot of stuff in America. Um, did he do Nemesis the Warlock? He did a black and white Nemesis, and then he went on to do Slain in colour. That's it. Um, but very graphic, very... And, you know, I just remember fascinating, fantastic sort of just to look at, not not, not necessarily just for the storyline, you know, but very rich and visceral. And Nemesis the Warlock was was weird. I mean, I've read some kind of collected editions recently, and it's strange. This kind of alien creature in this weird alien future world, Torquemada. And it got it got a lot weirder as well. I think sort of in the in the early nineties, it just went. I think when they changed to the graphic style of it, because it, I can't remember, is it Kevin Neal? Kevin Neal did the first stuff. Yeah, yeah. and when they, when they changed the artist, it just got a bit weirder. I think. But you know, you've got all of these kind of police state topics. You know, actually, two thousand AD did do a lot of um, edgy stuff. Actually, I mean, I'm yeah. thinking about one of my favourites, which is Invasion. Which is about the the Volgan invasion of Europe and the UK, um, which is actually quite topical considering the news from Ukraine this morning. Mm. Um, but apparently, in um, and I think it was it was actually Pat Mills that wrote Invasion, and it was in like the very early two thousand ADs in like seventy seven, and he wanted it to be Russia. He wanted it wanted it to be the Soviets that were invading. And apparently they did a whole load of artwork and, you know, the first few issues were, were actually written and drawn up. And then Future Publishing, um, who I think was the publisher back then, basically said, we can't run this. You have to change it. Uh, and they came up with this sort of fictitious Asian, presumably East Asian race of people called the Volgans who were, you know, brutal and invaded. And, and it was brilliant. It was so good. It was like a, you know, resistance story. Yeah, I think this is the, the Barkin exhibition was fa- fascinating and there's lots of, I mean, it's, it's a bit frustrating because obviously the comic exhibition, so everyone wanted to read all the comics, which just made it really slow. But I was much more interested in actually the sort of the, the context, you know, there's like the panels described the comics, the story, what it was telling and why it was important at that time. And there is a book which they published, which I, I didn't pick up and I should have done, but I'll see if I can get a copy because it's a really interesting narrative about sort of the, 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 they've got sort of six themes about the role of comics in sort of politics and sex and views of the self. I mean, it's not just about British comics in the late, say, sort of 80s and 90s. It goes back to sort of punch and Victorian sort of visual storytelling. It's really, really interesting. And it was, it's also for me, it was just really nostalgic to go, to go back and see some of these artists that I sort of loved as a teenager. I mean, that was one of the first jobs I really, really wanted to do was be a comic designer, illustrator. I remember sort of coming home really proud of it. And my sister grasped me up to the parents because she thought it would get me in trouble. <laughs> and, uh, and they were like, cool, do whatever you want to do. You know, um, I just, I don't know what happened. I just, I just, there was a fork in the road and I went down the sort of academic route rather than the creative route. Um, and that happened. But I do, you know, I, I, I'm still, I'm recently trying to get back into comics, but I'm finding I've got quite a specific taste that's very much sort of hinged on when I last read comics, sort of in the yeah. late eighties and early nineties. That's that's exactly the same with me. I mean, I read comics for longer. Started off with two thousand AD, and then when I was at art school, I was very into comics. I mean, I worked in a comic shop in Nottingham for a few years <laughs> with my mate Pete, and that was sort of V for Vendetta, Watchmen time. So you know, there was a lot of good stuff around and i got into early dark horse stories as mm-hmm. well there was a fabulous uh, dark horse story called the american 
which is basically about, you know, it's a sort of Captain America character, really, except that the big lie is that there isn't only one of him. You know, he hasn't got superpowers. Um, he's just a, you know, a well-built guy that dies. And, you know, when he, when he gets hit by a train or, you know, shot or something, uh, they replace him with another one. <laughs> That, you know, that's been genetically engineered or cosmetically uh, adapted to, you know, look the same. Um, brilliant stuff. You know, really brilliant stuff. Well, I remember great because I grew up in Leamington, um, same town as John Hicks. Um, and we just, there was no, nowhere to get comics there. So we, we like, I didn't know him until, um, sort of recently moving into the web, but we used to go to the same comic shop in Birmingham. I'm sort of treks out into Birmingham to go to Nostalgia and Comics and get our fixes. Well, it was Nostalgia and Comics, which was the shop that I worked in, but it was in Nottingham. Uh, so it was a yeah, sort of small chain. And yeah, it was. It was a little chain. I can remember the two people that ran it, and they sold out to Forbidden Planet. So I'm not sure even whether the little shop is still in the Broadmarsh Centre in Nottingham. But uh, my friend Pete definitely doesn't work there. There, you, there was another story. There was two, well, there's two really good stories that I love from those early 2000 ADs. There was the Harlem Heroes... Do you remember that? Was that like a rollerball type thing? Sort of, yes. But people, it was like basketball, but with jetpacks. So I think you remember. I think that was that. So I came into 2008 just when they started doing, you know, they'd have a colour feature rather than a colour cover, and then they just gradually moved towards colour. And I think a lot of those old sort of black and white storylines were just sort of on the wane as the sort of colour stuff took over. Well, there was a, it was a short series right at the very beginning and the, the, the characters came back, some of them. It became Inferno, which was basically, um, airable. So it was basketball with jetpacks, but then motorcycles and studded, studded gloves. Um, the, the sort of dystopian game of the future, but that was really, really good. And then there was another brilliant story called Flesh, which was about dinosaur farming and how in the future we've eaten everything. So we invent time travel and go back to the dinosaur era to farm them and take their meat back to the future for consumption. These old sort of um, comic lines, are they available now? Yeah, you can buy them in graphic novels. It's, I think Titan Books probably still do them, and they're brilliant. Yeah. I bought some quite recently. And these kind of things are, are, are just brilliant. I mean, I, I, I don't understand. I suppose the big, well, the, the, I was going to say the biggest question. There's actually two questions. First question is, why the hell can't I buy all of those old issues for my iPad? I mean, whoever runs, is it Future Now? Why can't they just put out, listen, literally 2000 AD in its original form as a EPUB or whatever for my iPad? You know, I would buy them again. Yeah. So I know they definitely now, they have quite a strong sort of online presence, so I think they do sell new storylines digitally, but I don't know if they sell old ones. I, I just buy the whole things again. Um, I mean, God, they would make such an enormous amount of money. And then the second thing is 2000 AD. It's got such a massive catalogue of characters and stories. I mean, the ones that I talked about, I mean, they're, they're the ones that I remember from 77 or 78. But why the hell are those stories not being made into films? Yeah. Because I can imagine a fantastic Flesh or Harlem Heroes film, right? I mean, who owns the rights to those bloody things? Well, I think it's a, uh, one of my favourite storylines from 2008 was a thing called Zenith. I don't know if you remember that. Um, no, I don't remember that one. And it was about a, super, a sort of reluctant superhero uh, who was a pop star. And he basically just didn't want to be a superhero. He was more interested in sort of getting girls and partying, but sort of ended up sort of 
it was a much bigger storyline about how, how the superheroes were all genetically engineered and things. Fantastic storyline, brilliantly, uh, brilliantly executed, beautiful illustration. Um, but they've never been able to publish it since, uh, this was probably about 89 or something, just because of the rights, because there's conflict between who thinks they came up with the character. And is it, is it owned by the comic? Is it owned by the, the writer? Is it owned by the illustrator? And it's only now, I think they, they did a sort of limited edition run. And the idea of the limited edition run was just to fund the potential legal defense if there was a, an argument about it. Um, but it's all right now. And they're, we, they're just now this year releasing those into sort of graphic novels, which I just can't wait to get my hands on because it was such a great storyline and probably the, one of two storylines I absolutely just will stay with me forever from 2008. I think the other one was um, one of the chopper ones, the Judge Dredd ones, uh, which was I'm trying to think. It was it was when the, it was a color one, Song of the Surfer, I think, or Chris Neal, Chris McNeil, beautifully drawn. Um, and both of those, I just you know, I'd love to get my hands on. I suppose a lot of the stories. I mean, a, a Harlem Heroes or a Flesh would have involved some pretty damn decent special effects to pull them off. And But they're very they're very much in that sort of that time, that the kind of sci fi that British television was producing at that time. You know, like Tomorrow's People and um sort of Blake Seven and all these sort of and and Doctor Who obviously. So that they're all in the same sort of style, aren't they? The the, the writing and the storyline. And it's kind of like the, the the, the, the visual storytelling is a little bit budget, you know, it's in black and white and it uses a lot of your imagination rather than having to sort of show you everything that's taking place. But, you know, with flesh, there were these, you know, big triceratops farms <laughs> with, you know, hundred foot high electric fences that would keep the, you know, keep the dinosaurs in. Um, and I mean, you know, time travel and everything else. I mean, they probably couldn't have pulled off actually making a film like that convincingly. I mean, it's basically I, Jurassic Park with a drive-in, isn't it? It's, yeah, more or less. Um, whereas now, obviously, you know, CGI is, is so convincing. I mean, I watched, um, I watched Godzilla the other day, the new Godzilla. Um, and it's stunning. It's such a good film. Um, and I'm, you know, not, I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of like, great big monsters or robots knocking seven bells out of each other like Jeremy is. Um, but this was really good. And they could make it at Harlem Heroes now. They could make a flesh now. Um, whereas maybe they couldn't 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Well, I think definitely, you know, comics have a very strong currency um, in the films at the moment. Um, but there's also a lot of effort being made to remake stuff. I mean, maybe that energy could be put... You know, it's no coincidence that a lot of these fantastic storytellers that lead to films like The Watchmen, they, I mean, they, they're all of that time, you know, that, like you said, Alan Moore coming out of 2008, these really, really sort of fantastic storytellers, um, are, are making, you know, they, they make stuff that can be used very easily to film. Um, and ha- where it has done, it has been very effective. Beef Vendetta and Watchmen are both, I think, very good films, uh, very successful. But, you know, I love a bit of Captain America. I thought yeah. The Winter Soldier was a really good film. I thought it was actually better than the first one. Um, I've not seen it. They've green light or green litted. I don't know how you say it. Captain America 3. So, you know, Marvel have their roadmap and that's, you know, that's obviously in their interest to make films. But why, why Hollywood isn't 
literally going through back issues of 2000 AD going, oh my God, wouldn't DR and Quinch be such a great film? That'd be fantastic. Or Sam Spade, Robo Hunter. Rogue Trooper. Rogue Trooper. Um, I mean, and we've got to talk about it. We've got to get onto it. Judge Dredd. Yeah. Now, obviously, the Stallone movie was not his finest hour. Who um, dreads or Stallone's or both? Well, I think both, really. Um, I mean, you know, it is a little bit of a guilty pleasure. I will watch it mainly for the ABC Warriors when it comes on the telly. And I have it on my iTunes library because I think I got it on DVD years ago. But it's not brilliant. I mean, and the the latest one with Carl Urban I thought was very, very, very good. But it was essentially the raid in Mega City. Yeah. And it was, you think of all the sort of storylines they could have run with. It, it was oh, actually very, God. it was not, they didn't really sort of embrace the, the, the characters around the Judge Dredd sort of storyline, except for Anderson. This is why it would be so, so disappointing if they didn't make any more, because I know that Dredd didn't, the, the latest film didn't do very well um, at the box office. I think it was like $41 million, which is like bugger all. Yeah. It's, I think it's done quite a lot better in terms of, you know, like downloads and DVD sales now. But they're likely not going to make another one, which is such a shame. Because if you think about, you know, the stories that I remember, like, um, I don't know, let's think about The Cursed Earth. Or, um, I'll tell you what, The Robot Wars. That would yeah. be the one that I would make. The, the the very early Robot Wars would be the story that I would do. If you think about it, the um, you know, one thing that's happened with the new Dread film, though, is there's a massive community of people making fan films. And the ease... It kind of reminds me of that, you know, a lot of the comics, the subversive comics of the 70s and 80s came out of an underground movement where people were sort of essentially making their own comics. They were, they, you know, they used their dad's photocopier rather than print stuff up properly and it would all be sort of dark alleys and things. And that's how a lot of the, the, the famous writers and artists got known. You know, Brian Bollard, Brian, is it Bollard or Bolland? Bolland. But who's just amazing. And he went on to have massive success in America with this sort of, particularly with the cover work he did for a lot of comics. You know, that, that all started out of sort of people writing these subversive comics on a budget. And it's, I think the film industry is doing something very similar where you've got these communities, uh, Star Wars is very similar as well, where you've got these communities of fans that how have the technology and the means to do stuff a lot for themselves and can actually, you know, A, write their own storylines and B, sort of leverage their storylines because it's not a big budget studio. They're not having to deal with, you know, massive, cash movements to try and get the rights to things. And what's interesting is that 2080 seems to be embracing that rather than sort of, you know, the music industry approach, which is to slam it down. They're actually saying, you know, this is a great way of communicating. You know, it's good PR. It's good. It's good branding. It comes back to what we were saying earlier about mud and doing the rates. You know, it's really good advertising for us to do this. Um, and it's, yes, yeah, but I think sort of to have a company like 2080, I don't know who owns it now, but they're sort of rewarding and encouraging fan art. You know, they always used to have like Fargs letters and things like that, and people were sending their own artwork. And I'm sure they probably got a lot of a lot of the sort of artists on their roster through probably people sending in contributions. Um, but yeah, it's great to see that community being embraced. And there are a few fan films that I've watched as address stuff, and it's they're, they're really good quality. I just, I just want to see Call Me Kenneth, the robot. Call me Kenneth Bowles. <laughs> That's what I would do. The Welsh version. I'd do a Welsh version, yeah. I'd call me Kenneth. Um, no, it's such a good one. I don't know who would who would do the voice for Walter the Wobot. I wouldn't know. I don't know. I don't know. Who does that? Who does no, that? Um, Michael Sheen, probably. 
Michael Sheen. He crops up everywhere. No, it would just be, there's just so many stories that they could do. And I do get a little bit frustrated. It's like, oh yeah, another Revengers. I mean, yeah, I'll be, it'll be good. Next year? Is it this year or next year? Age of Ultron. Ah, uh, next year. Um, but you know, I shall watch that and I shall enjoy that. But I would just, I would want to see another, I'd want to see Judge Dredd ten times more than I would want I to would see. I would love to see a strong team dog film. That would just be amazing. I don't really remember that because it wasn't some. It wasn't a storyline that I liked a lot. I liked Sam Spade the Robo Hunter because he had a partner that was a baby. That was was that Ian Gibson, same yes. artist that did um, Halo Jones. Yes, it was Ian Gibson, and I did like Rogue Trooper actually. Yes, they could do a Rogue Trooper film, which again, you know, talking about Russia, but you know, you could actually give things a contemporary spin. You know, it doesn't have to be on a planet in some kind of alien galaxy. Blue guy running around Ukraine with a backpack that talks to him. That's where I am with 2000 AD. I mean, I wish I'd been to this exhibition now. Yeah. Well, definitely try and get hold of the book. It was, it was, it was a great exhibition. It was a bit frustrating because it was just the pace of it was quite hard because everyone was trying to read all the panels, obviously. But it was, it was very eye-opening and it was a, I think the book looks fascinating because it's, you know, much more essays about rather than Small little boxes with some text in next to it, seeing an original piece of uh, Simon Busy artwork. But it was good. It was really good. Have you been to the Doctor Who exhibition in Cardiff? I haven't, no. Yeah, it's well worth going. I mean, I, I was going to do it handheld last year, and then uh, I didn't have to. I got to see you wheel out a giant Dalek. Oh, yeah. But no, I, I, I enjoyed the Doctor Who thing, and why we don't see more of these 2000 AD characters, even the current characters, even just regular Judge Dredd. I mean, you know, why Why are people not making more out of those, of, of, out of that franchise, out of those characters? You know, why Why isn't there a 2000 AD permanent exhibition with huge polystyrene ABC warriors? <laughs> be flipping awesome. It would, it would just be the best thing in the world. You can get quite, uh, it's quite good replica dread badges I've seen as well. I kind of, they do, there's a company that does them in resin and they do your own, your names on them. And I can't say there's not a part of me that's like, I would love a, a Judge Dread badge with my name on it. Well, you know, I do buy a lot of plastic crap, as Susan says. <laughs> I like me action figures. I've been buying up, you know, Planet of the Apes action figures because Nika have just released a new series and they're really good. I'm going to put some shelves up this weekend that have got my figures on there, right? But you can't really get good 2000 AD characters in action figures. I mean, they're just not there. I mean, where the hell is the merchandising? They're missing a trick. Uh, what is the, I think cause it's, the, it's the same demographic as the people that are buying up Lego Star Wars stuff that you know, so as Lego Star Wars, I, I have to say, hands up, I've bought quite a lot of it myself in the past. But it's it's kind of frustrating that it's deliberately made very collectible. And you've got these people that were bought up on Lego and Star Wars that have suddenly got quite a lot of disposable income snapping it up. And then you've got, you know, we're trying to, I'm trying to get my kids into, into it, because that's what you do, you pass it on. And they're finding it quite frustrating, because they can't get the figures they want, because geeks are snapping them up. But all that's just to say that there's, there's probably quite a big market for geeks with disposable income to go and snap up your start your 2008 merchandise. I reckon there's a whole demographic of people that are kind of like, I don't know, 
between thirties and four, you know, between thirty and fifty. Um, but this is like me; I'm somewhere in that spectrum. Um, that would just snap that stuff up. I mean, oh, I would love it. Anyway, I imagine that you've got way better things to be doing with your day now. Well, lunch for a start. Lunch for a start. So, listen, thanks a lot, mate, for for chatting today. It's been great fun. And uh, we'll have to make another point of getting you on again because there's like a million things that we didn't talk about that we could do and some things that we did touch on that I want to go into more detail. So I'd love to. I think people are like that. Okay, great stuff. Well, I'll, uh, I'll see you another day.